Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Tim McIntosh. I feel like Tim's always trying to distract us. This is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader from Goldberry Studios. And we're here to discuss your questions. David, I'm just drinking tea out of a huge green mug. I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tim is trying to distract us. It's just a, it's just a fact of life. Tim I think we might have tiger blood Tim. Tiger blood Tim. Tiger blood Tim. might have when, tiger blood Tim again. The reality is when do we not have tiger blood Tim? Thank you. Thank you very much. I have not discontinued <laughs> like the whole 30 dollars. Right, yeah, don't answer. No, this <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's in, in rhetorical terms, that's called a loaded question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like earlier in rhetorical terms, David poisoned the well by saying Tim is always trying to distract us. Now, listeners have something in mind that Tim is like hanging from the chandelier. Okay. Um, Tim, I didn't down. do anything. Oh. Everybody's aware of this already. It's just out there. It's been out there for years. This is an ongoing podcast. Most of our listeners have been listening for a long time. I didn't have to poison the well. The well has been poisoned for a long time. And, we you're, are, and you're saying, I am the one who poisoned it. Just to be, I just want to be clear. You've been here a long time. That's all I'm going to say. You've been here a long time. We're here to discuss your questions about Willa Cather's novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop. And before we do that, though, you know, I just feel like I feel like it's been a while since I've given you each the opportunity to, you know, just let us know how things are going because we haven't done much small talk the last couple of weeks on the podcast. It comes up here and there, particularly as we're discussing tiger blood, but Heidi, t- how, how are, how are you? How, do you want, you know, we can just spend a, Thanks, you have, you have 30 seconds. This is a really meaningful to, conversation. 30 seconds me. to tell the world yeah. how you are. <laughs> yes. Um, so, as aforementioned on this podcast before, I did complete a two-week smoothie cleanse, which keeps becoming a topic of conversation because one of my goals in the smoothie cleanse was to be like Tim McIntosh and A, achieve tiger blood status and B, lose ten, five ten pounds. Seconds. I wanted to lose five pounds. Not, no, like it's just like, okay, you can have your tiger blood, but- <laughs> Wait, so you did this for two weeks and you felt and great. I lost nothing. I ate broccoli. I drank like mango sweetened. Like I was <laughs> so excited about the mango every day. I was like, oh my gosh, guys, today mango. Like, and I did it all for tiger blood. I did all to feel better. And I did it to lose like just five pounds. That's it. But now that I'm in my forties, it's harder. And that is how I am. I don't like that. Heidi. Were you, Let this be a lesson did you, to you. change right? your like, exercise I'm habits I'm going to need to get COVID. What? Did you change your exercise habits at all when See, you no. were? The- See, no. Yeah. And now I feel grumpy about that because I don't like to exercise. Oh, oh, oh. 
So well, yeah, because it's the worst. Because it's oh my gosh, right? It's, no, it's great. So, it's so yeah, great. You, have you just have to blood. find the thing. You just have to find the thing that well, you. Well, see, want. that's true. So you're right about that. And I like to hike, <clears throat> and so all this all summer, I'll be like outside, five mile walks, hikes all the time. In the winter, every winter, I'm like, this is the winter I'm going to use the Peloton. Have you considered snowshoeing? <laughs> is that winter? No, I've never considered snowshoeing, snowshoeing, snowshoeing. It's just snow hiking. Yeah, but you have to get these shoes. Well, you've got to get shoes to, to hike snow. too. They're called hiking boots. I know. You're not wrong. I'm just. The issue. I'm, come on. Let's be straight. The issue is it's cold. It's cold. Isn't that's that what the issue, issue is? That's what it is. Well, it's yes, hot that's what in the I, summer. Thank you for calling me out. Yeah. Oh, but great news. I have a greenhouse now. Oh, well, that is, oh, that is good news. So you're great, is I what know. we're saying. Okay, I, well, that um, was I, way yeah. longer than 30 seconds. Now you asked. You said, how are you? And that, like, voice, you know, that's, like, yeah, inviting and, confidences. Right, and I said 30 and, seconds. And then you just, you I know. didn't. You, that was a suggestion. You know it was did. like a guideline. You just, it's like when you Poison give your kids, <laughs> when you give your kids, you know, an inch. An inch. They and take they three minutes. they swim all over you. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great, David. Thanks for asking. Um, 28 yeah. more seconds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel good. I've been doing this whole 30 diet. I recommend it to anyone. I careful, careful about how you spend the next 25 no, seconds now. <laughs> yep. Am I allowed to mention how much weight that I've lost? Yeah, you can. No, Go I'm just kidding. It. I'm totally kidding. I don't. I, I don't know. You look great. Although you've always looked great. But no, I got a little, a friend of mine said it best. You, Tim, you started looking a little fluffy. Fluffy. Yeah. That's, that's girl code. That, okay, yeah. I had never heard that before. It's such a great word to describe. Like you didn't put on a lot of weight, but you just started looking a little fluffy. You don't look bad. And I started bad. feeling a little fluffy. You don't look bad. It's just you not just the same fluffy. as it was. Yeah. 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 David, how are you doing? I just got, can I just describe the scene to our listeners? David has his red headphones on his hair is pushed back from his forehead he has like these like really thick dark locks he's a <laughs> full beard and he has kind of a beat era sweatshirt or sweater on like he's gonna start he's gonna like start reciting jack kerouac lyrics from some obscure 1952 album that he did man with i own a bookstore so you gotta you know you gotta leave. That's you gotta right. make people think you can recite Jack Kerouac. You've Harawak. always been yeah. a fashionable kind of person, though. That's true about you. You said two different we things, but we're gonna go with yeah. yours version being a compliment. Go on, Tim. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing David, the beat poet, yeah, but, owner you know, of a bookstore. That could hide. There, there still might be like some kind of darkness in his soul that he wants to tell us about. Deep seated insecurities yeah. and things like that. Yes. <laughs> Thirty seconds. Go. Oh, we don't. My deep-seated insecurities would take much longer than 30 seconds to reveal. So we're just going to skip same. them. Just going to skip them. I'm doing well. I am um, just busy. Just busy. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but it's been great uh, trying these new things and diving in and never sleeping. Which Here's the thing. I wasn't sleeping anyway, so now I'm just doing other stuff when I'm not sleeping. Um, but uh, yeah, building cathedrals. Yeah. Um, it's been a great experience so far. And I, I want to say, actually, now that I have 10 more seconds to do so, I want to thank everybody who's been buying books through Bookshop um, and you know through Goldberry, through Bookshop.org, because we're seeing your support show up and it's, it's uh, been meaningful. So we, I just want to 
you know, say thank you to everybody who has purchased a book, whether for the podcast or uh, for your homeschool or for your own reading life, whatever it is, anybody who's been doing that, thank you so much. That's been um, a boon. Wind beneath our wings. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Choose your particular, um, usually flight or nautical. between my wings. Yeah. What's that? I said uh, you can mix the metaphor and call it a boon between... Be- be- Beneath your wings. Between your wings? <laughs> yeah. It's like in, the, in, the, in your back between your wings? Sideways. Yeah. <laughs> it's better than a spear in the back, right? Um, mm-hmm. So just want to say thank you to everybody uh, for that. With that, we're going to get into some uh, questions that our listeners sent in about Death Comes for the Archbishop. And I want to remind you, we are going to start Rebecca Daphne de Mornier's novel, Rebecca Next. And then after that, we're going to be diving into Jane Eyre, which is why I want to bring, bring up Jane Eyre, because I just want to let you know about... Karen Swallow Pryor's books from B&H Publishing because she has a whole series now. I think she's going to have four out and then there's two coming every year, uh, af- uh, every year thereafter. These books bring the best of the classics. Um, that is not what this says, actually. It says bringing the best of the classics, not they bring the best of the classics. Engl- reading is hard. They bringing. It says they, they bringing, bringing yeah, the best of exactly. the classics. Yeah. Bringing the best of the classics. Award-winning English professor and author Karen Swallow Pryor provides insightful introductions and reading tips that help you read through the lens of the gospel. The series includes Jane Eyre, which we are going to use her edition to, when we, when we dive into the book, we're going to use her actual manuscript, and she's going to join us. She also has Frankenstein, Heart of Darkness, and Sense and Sensibility, with more coming next year. You can pick up these beautifully designed classics today and reread these literary masterpieces with a faithful guide who has spent a great deal of time studying them. You can learn more at bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics, or uh, if you'd you know like to get them through an independent bookstore in your area, or say Goldberry Books, you can go over to bookshop.org and search for those and get your copy there. But if you want to learn more about the entire series in one comprehensive page, head over to BH, as in the letters, bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. And we are very excited to have Karen joining us for a book that she has a great deal of knowledge about and a great deal of affection for. So I think those are going to be some uh, wonderful conversations coming up later this spring. First, though, as I said, we're going to do Rebecca next. So get ready to start the the first several chapters of that uh, for next Friday. We'll, we will record on Thursday and those episodes will go up on Friday. Tim, you have something on the tip of your tongue that you would like to say. I wanted to mention something that we're doing on the plays, the thing. So um, the National Theater in London is about is going to release on PBS for your home viewing in early, sorry, in late April, um, Romeo and Juliet, a stage version of Romeo and Juliet. Mm. And Heidi, Sarah Jane, and myself have taken are this going opportunity. going to it. And they're going to take one go- lucky going, person with flying. them. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? That would be amazing. Um, we are going to begin our Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> on that person's dime. <laughs> on that person's dime. We're going to record it all over the Atlantic yep, Ocean. Yep. Um, yeah, so our next podcast after, uh, Romeo, excuse me, after Richard II is fully released, we'll be diving into Romeo mm. and Juliet. And the first three episodes of that are now up. The, the, the early returns on that are good. Some really nice Facebook comments, like maybe better than you deserve, honestly, like probably better yeah, than we deserve. Probably better That's than right. you deserve. Yeah. Um, so, so the place, the thing, so act four of Richard II will go up next Tuesday. So you have some time to catch up before you get to the end of that one. Yeah. 
Um, no, I'm I'm joking. By the way, you you deserve the accolades. It's been great to to listen to it's that. It's all so. Heidi. So it's Heidi. It's one of Heidi's favorite Shakespeare plays. I do kind of go on and on and on. You and do on not and go on. on and on. Yeah. You bring the knowledge <laughs> and the passion. And furthermore, <laughs> speaking one of more which, thing before we yeah. um So, so you're so Act Four of that uh, this week. Also, Heidi and I brought back the Daily Poem. So that's been going up every day. Thanks to Heidi for filling in for me when I'm like at the dentist, for example. And uh, so um, check that out. And then just to summarize, for next week, we're going to read chapters one through seven of Rebecca. And that will go up on the 19th. We were recorded on the 18th. So you've got a week from when you're listening to this for, to, to read the first seven chapters of Rebecca, if you can actually stop in the middle of that book. Okay, let's ask, let's do some questions. Let's answer some people's questions. We've gone on long enough with this chit chat. We have some good questions here. And... I want to start with this one that the the focus is on the title and it we talked about it a little bit, but I think it's worth asking the question in the way that um, Ilya um, asks it. I think her phrasing is is worth contemplating. She says, "Why is this book called Death Comes for the Archbishop?" So that's her question. But then she says, "It seems the wrong title for a book that focuses on the life of this man, and even makes the point of showing that he doesn't live in fear of death." or see it as a specter to be dreaded. And then I'm going to add it, the idea of death coming then, you know, coming after him like a predator perhaps seems out of place. She says, in a sense, any novel about a person could just be called death comes for dot, dot, dot. But it just seems the farthest thing from the focal point of this, this particular book. So I imagine a lot of people were feeling that. We talked about it a little bit, but Heidi, would you like to address that from this particular angle? I don't know what Willa Cather has said about this because I imagine she's fielded this question about this particular novel. And um, the number one question could... she gets in heaven. <laughs> Death came for her, and now she's got to answer the question. <laughs> um, so the I don't know what what the official you know answer is, um, but I do think as we discussed last week, um, the full. This is a very slow rolling novel. Uh, it's it's a novel that you get rewarded for your investment in. Um, and so as we come to this kind of long description of his final days, uh, we do learn that he is looking back on his life and remembering what has brought him to this point. And, um, and then I think that that is a sufficient kind of answer for this question. There is this sense that he's meditating and thinking about the moments in his life that have led him to fulfill his great work. Um, and, and then his death, he has a good death, a, a really good death, a death that all of us wish we might have, right? Um, and on his deathbed, he is indeed meditating on his life and remembering. And, and these might then be the kind of pearls that on a string that have slipped off and become the meditations upon his deathbed. There's a follow-up question to Ilya's question that was really good too, that said, why isn't then why isn't it then a memory novel if these are the memories leading up to his death? And I think part of that's just simply formal or structural. It's not a memory novel because a memory novel is in first person. That it that is part of the definition of a memory novel. And this one is not. Um, so we have we're we're able to kind of displace ourselves and and um and and see it through multiple perspectives, but I do think that the idea is that he has a good death, um, and that these are the high points that have kind of led him to where he's at in having a good death. 
BW, um, I'm going to butcher BW's last name. Perales has a great comment on the Facebook page mm-hmm. about um, Cather says it's Cather's meditation on last things and mm-hmm. makes reference in an essay to um, a painting. Am I not mistaken? Anyway, I, I rather than try to give an answer that would be inferior to BW Perales's, I'll just direct people to the Facebook answer to Ilya's question. I thought it was really helpful and insightful. That was good. Do you have it up in front of you right now? I do. You want me to read it? Yeah, because there's a lot of listeners who aren't on Facebook, and I, oh, that's so I think right. Sharing with sharing what that comment was with people would be would be helpful. I have it up here if you if you want me to do it, but if you have it there, I'll read it. I'll yeah, read it. Go for it's it. from yeah. um, Cather's Studies, Volume One, and B.W. Perales posted it on Facebook. The heart of this book then is Cather's meditation on last things. What is the way to live since one must die? What is the way to avoid Myra Henshaw's torment? In her essay, On Death Comes for the Archbishop, Cather comments that its title came from Holbein's death, Dance of Death. The reference is revealing, for in this series of woodcuts upon the medieval theme, the bishop alone goes to his death with serenity, humbly facing death across a landscape which, it, in its simpl- simplification, resembles the landscape of Cather's novel. There is his flock, frightened and scattered. He has been a faithful pastor. There are the church on the hill and the setting sun, which accrue rich symbolic value for Cather. And across the landscape, as much at one with his death as the setting sun moves the dignified, patient bishop. It goes on a little bit longer, but that, that's the gist of it. It is interesting that... Uh there's a sort of um, it, the predatory, the, the title has a predatory sound to it, right? That, you know, it's pursuing him, pursuing him and pursuing him. So how do you, that tone, I feel like is one thing that is still out there, hasn't been answered sufficiently for me, that the implication of the title and the predatory nature of it why does she, I mean, there's the, there's the literary reference to, or, uh, you know, the artistic reference to Holbein's dance of death. And there's the themes that you're talking about, Heidi, but that for me, anyway, that the predatory suggestion that's in that title is not something that's been sufficiently answered. Is that, is that just me being, I mean, do you have an answer for that? Either of you? I think that it's, I mean, I think that that's a fair criticism of the title for sure. Um, but I think so much of what she's doing in this novel is redeeming, is, is kind of redeeming perceptions, right? That we have this perception of the Catholic Church. We have this perception of the West. We have this perception of Indian culture. We have, right? And, and she treats it so lovingly and compassionately that throughout the course of the novel, we are kind of moved gently, not forced, but invited to see these things that we have perceptions of in a new way, in a gentler, kinder, more compassionate way, which is one of the things I love about the novel. And so I, I think that that's that, that the irony then of the title is one of those things that she's attempting to kind of get us to see differently. It does have a predatory thing. It doesn't sound like, it does sound like a murder mystery as Tim said a couple of times, but it's not. And, and so we adjust our expectations then of death in the same way that we do of Indian culture and the Catholic church and the old West and this, all these things that she's exploring. Um, and that may not be 
sufficient, but I, I think it's part of what she's attempting to invite her readers to just see things through kindness and and be willing to change those perceptions. So I think she's okay with it. If if I were to have written this novel, I'd be like, I'm okay with the fact that you had a wrong perception of this title when you came into the novel. That's kind of what I'm trying to do. Change the perception. Hmm. I love attempts to, I, for lack of a better word, anthropomorphize things that as contemporaries, modern people, we tend to not anthropomorphize. So death for us is um, something that occurs after the life force has left us. But I think for a medieval, and I think maybe even for the indigenous peoples of New Mexico, death is a living force, you know, seeking the destruction of living inhabitants. So it has kind of a, a will and maybe even an intellect to it. And I just wonder, I don't want to make too much of this because I, I don't want to even presume that Catherine was thinking, yes, I'm going to kind of give a nod to the, what's the right word? Um, to this kind of pre-modern sensibility about death, that it's a living willful force. But I think that the book does throughout the narrative echo a more, um, an earlier vision of the world. And so wouldn't it make sense for the title to allude to that earlier vision of the world where things like death have an instantiated will and intellect. Um, okay, let's move on to the next question. Anne asks, why do some characters like Magdalena keep popping up throughout the novel while others don't? Tim just shrugged. Said, because, I don't know. I, I saw this question on Facebook and I thought, um, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that. Um, because some characters show up and other characters don't show up. Maybe Magdalena is kind of evidence of the long-lasting grace that was um, bestowed on her by the two fathers. But that doesn't seem like a really profound reply. So I'm going like, to offer Heidi the opportunity to give the profound reply to this question. Because I can't, Heidi, because I can't, okay? I, I, no, I think that's right. I mean, one, that's how relationships over the course of a life are. Some people are episodes, some people are long lasting, right? And Magdalene is one of those. And I do think she is uh, meant to uh, evoke in us an understanding of the salvific power of the church and the impact of these men on her life. Hmm. Um, okay, let's see. Jeff says, talked about the setting and how Cather so vividly describes the American Southwest. Can you put a finger on what she does that so effectively creates this? It strikes me that it's more than simply lots of descriptive detail. How do you immediately turn towards your book or some papers or something as if to suggest to me, I have thoughts on this. So I'm going to assume that you have thoughts on this. Uh, the setting's super, super important in the novel. This is a a novel that required a very powerful like a very 
powerful presence of a landscape and a setting and a geography and a culture that is connected to the geography, which is probably true for every culture, right? I mean, you can't take, for example, like uh, like Aleutian culture and try to put it in a desert because it belongs in the ice and the cold, right? Like it is that this is every culture is somehow connected to the land. Um, but in this, this particular novel and the exploration of the, the description of the land and the impact of the land on the different cultures that have come together in this place reminds me a lot of Flannery O'Connor when she talks about how she writes these like really dark things into her stories in order to, uh, I can't even remember how she puts it. Like, it's like a toddler drawing and like a big caricature, right? And I think that's very similar to what Willa Cather is doing here, um, that she is drawing this uh, so to speak, and with words, she is drawing or giving us this big primal landscape that has all of these contrasts and uh, and is very harsh. Like these are people that, that had to live next to a natural water source um, all the time because water is so rare in their, in, in their land. And that does something to a person raised in a place like that. Um, and, and so I think what she's saying is that this land is acting on all of these people and all of these people are then acting on the land. That's why the, the landscape itself is almost like a character in the novel. Like the reason that we have, for example, uh, Baltazar, the priest who gets thrown off the top of Akama, the reason that we have that is because there's an Akama. There's a big giant a piece of landscape that's possible to throw somebody off of, which has completely defined the people that live there, uh, including then the fate of this particular priest. Uh, and in order to accomplish that, Cather had to set this novel in a place that was sufficient to kind of this big caricature that she's drawing. And she chose the Southwest, which I think is brilliant um, because there's a clash of multiple cultures there. Um, there's the Mexican culture, the Indian culture, and the Protestant culture, and the Catholic culture. That's And all of those things kind of converge in this really stark place, and it gets like just kind of this really cool fodder for such a novel. What do you mean by caricature, that, that she's caricaturizing? And I, I don't mean that negatively. I mean it because the land itself, if you've anybody who's been to the Southwest, uh, it is almost in itself a caricature. It's almost unbelievable in the starkness of the landscape. Like Akama, for example, which I've never been up to Akama, but I've driven by it several times. It's like vividly imprinted in my mind because it looks like a child's drawing. It's this giant orange like mountain that looks like it's been just like chopped off. And in like this huge landscape that's like this blood red and it has this sky that's like, dark blue even in the middle and even in the morning like it's that's what I mean by by caricature not that the novel itself is like crudely drawn but that this particular place is so manifestly extreme in nature Hmm. and so are the cultures that dwell there Hmm. Tim go ahead I just was going to read one of the descriptions that I found to be one of the highlights of the book. This is for me on page 102. It's from the section, The Mass at Acoma. 
In the gray dust of the enclosed garden, two thin, half-dead peach trees still struggled with the drought, the kind of unlikely tree that grows up from an old root and never bears. By the wall, yellow suckers put out from an old vine stump, very thick and hard, which must have borne its ripe clusters. Built upon the northeast corner of the cloister, the bishop found a loggia roofed, but with many sides, many open sides, looking down on the white pueblo and the tawny rock and over the wide plain below. There he decided he would spend the night. From this loggia, he watched the sun go down, watched the desert become dark, the shadows creep upward. Abroad in the plain, the scattered mesa tops, red with the afterglow, one by one, lost their light like candles going out. He was on a naked rock in the desert, in the Stone Age, a prey to homesickness for his own kind, his own epoch, for European man and his glorious hidden history of desire and dreams. Through all the centuries that his own part of the world had been changing, like the sky at daybreak, these people had been fixed, increasing neither in number nor desires, rock turtles on their rock, something rep reptilian he felt here, something that had endured by immobility, kind of life out of reach, like the crustaceans in their armor. Mm. I mean, part of that is just like, that's just craft. That's just craft. It's such great craft. I think, Heidi, didn't you read some of that section from an er during an earlier episode, maybe episode three? Yeah, I mean, it, it, Heidi's answer is, I think, really excellent. And I think, um, I think other writers include plenty of descriptions of place. They're just not as good. <clears throat> There's also, at the beginning of, on 175, at the beginning of the Doña Isabella section, brings into focus what Bishop Latour's goals are. And it says Bishop Latour had one very keen worldly ambition to build in Santa Fe a cathedral, which would be worthy of a setting naturally beautiful. And so that sentence could have been, could have ended with the word cathedral. He wanted to build a cathedral in Santa Fe, or he wanted to build a cathedral for the people to worship, or he wanted to build a cathedral to honor Christ or Mary or whatever, whatever. But it says very specifically, a cathedral which would be worthy of a setting naturally beautiful. And so her descriptions tie us into the way that the landscape itself has a hold of the imaginations of the people. And on the one hand, it has a hold of the imagination, and more specifically, the spiritual imaginations of the people. Because you, you have this, the, the religion of the indigenous people that is tied to the landscape. But it also shows that Bishop Latour's Catholicism, which is, you know, ostensibly meant to, for lack of a better word, cure the pagans of their own religion, is also tied to the landscape in much the same way. Similarly to the way that the, the indigenous people would build their own sort of temples or worship the landscape or something, you know, and that goes more, much more than just Native Americans, right? That's that's an ancient, that's an ancient uh, part of of religion. Similarly, he wants to build this temple of sorts that is an ode to the landscape. It's it's worthy of this landscape that they're living in, and so it's capturing the spiritual imagination as much as it is something to battle against. He recognizes it as recognizes it as being something to honor, um, 
and it's a fine line between honoring and worshiping something sometimes, <laughs> um, which, which I think is maybe the difference between the paganism and the Catholicism in this book is that question of what they're worshiping. Um, I think that she captures that really, really interestingly. How did you want to add something? Well, yes, I want to add why I like that line so much because people keep asking that. Um, Because I mentioned that Bishop Latour had one very keen worldly ambition to build in Santa Fe a cathedral, which would be worthy of a setting naturally beautiful. As he cherished this wish and meditated upon it, he came to feel that such a building might be a continuation of himself and his purpose, a physical body full of his aspirations after he had passed from the scene. And like all of Cather's sentences, it's beautifully drawn and subtle, and you could talk about it for a long, long, long time. Uh, But I said before that this makes me think of David Kern and my husband and my best friend, who are all, those are three separate people, by the way, Um, and (laughs) commas between all of them. Um, I just want to say that that is very true yeah i confirm that as a statement Um, of fact yes panda eats shoots and i appreciate the clarification yeah um so rumors get started (laughs) the panda eats shoots and leaves indeed yeah exactly um and i'll because i'm not a person like this i think that's why i i am like so you're not a person who wants to build a a cathedral in the desert i'm not a person who wants to build something that is a continuation of myself and my purpose and I think that there are people like that, that are like just driven to build something, um, something physical and tangible. I'm very driven to encourage people or to like impart knowledge, right? Um, or learn from people. Like I'm very relationally driven. Um, and, but I, I think that there are people like this Bishop Latour, who's very different from Vaillant. And we see the contrast between them, right? That, like Viant is like, I want to spread the faith, right? But Latour, which is building something, but it's not the same thing as Latour. He's like, I want to make yeah, something. Vi- Viant doesn't even, doesn't get why the particularities of it matter. Exactly. Why, and why in building a cathedral, it would matter to make it worthy of the setting, right? Yeah. And to make it with this special rock and to make it according to these specifications uh, and to, because it is not only a continuation of himself, he's not just like building a monument to himself, but it's a continuation of his purpose. And that those things are so connected to him to make something that in order to leave behind, that is a continuation of myself and my purpose and my aspirations. And that is like just really beautiful to me and very compelling to me. And I think, I like love that about these people that are in my, like, like I said, these three people in my life and David, you're one of them that like, just, you want to build something and you want it and you're driven to do that. And you can't always even say why. Right. And I think that that's lovely. And, and I love that um, she, she honors that. And I think it's another reason why, however, that you need Viant in the story Um because he kind of provides like the contrast to that. It's like, I'm just out here to like spread the faith and to administer the sacraments. And he does like an equally great work in the world. It's just a very different kind of work, but it's all towards the same good, which I think is really beautiful as well. Um, 
so anyway, that's, that's why I mentioned for our listeners, that's why I mentioned David um, and why I love this particular line so much. It was one of those lines that I, when I read the book, I'm like, I know people like that. And I think it's really a beautiful thing. Um, and because I'm kind of on the outside of that, I just can keep learning from it. So anyway, we can move on. I just wanted to make sure I hit that because several people have asked, several listeners have wanted follow up to that. Today's episode of the Close Reads podcast is brought to you by Thales College in Raleigh, North Carolina, a new college that integrates liberal arts and professional education at an affordable cost. You don't have to choose either liberal arts or a job-related major in education. Thales College combines both to provide the best possible preparation to help students thrive in both life and work. The cost of college is out of control today because of bloated administrations, enormous athletic programs, and luxurious, unnecessary amenities. Most schools have become too expensive to be a responsible choice for students. By contrast, Thales College was designed with a business model that actually makes sense for students who want to make their first major investment as an adult a responsible choice. Thales College students will draw a profound understanding of humanity and society from the deep wells of Western civilization, gain pertinent job experience through internships, and accumulate actual professional skills in college instead of student debt. Currently, there are professional tracks in both entrepreneurial business and mechanical engineering. For more information, head over to thalescollege.org. That's www.thalesthales.org. the question here that I think we should direct towards you comes from Tori. Bear with me while I read it. She says, Tim discussed how he saw the overall theme of the book as bringing order into the chaos of this new world. I certainly see several examples of this, from the discussion of Latour's fruit trees, whose shoots are to be found in the gardens of many, to the, um, to the reigning in of the corrupt priests they find in the area. But there also seems to be a sense in which Latour over time comes to see and appreciate the order that is already there. I'm thinking of the description of how the, the Pueblo tribes more, uh, move over the land without leaving a trace, without the white man's need to make their mark on the place in order for it to seem orderly, that the native peoples respect and seek to join in the existing order instead of changing it. Similarly, when Latour is approaching retirement and he notices the old apricot that is producing abundantly on a piece of land, he recognizes the fitness of the land for producing fruit, its inherent order, and makes his retirement abode based on that fact. That passage seemed to be alluding to the choices of his whole life, how he came to draw out the order that was already there and see it flourish instead of mastering it or subduing it in an old world ideal. How do you reconcile these ideas with the theme of bringing order from the outside? End quote. Tim, I think, take I it think away. I think Tori is right that he does come to see and respect the landscape and the peoples of New Mexico. And he's kind of, um, I can't remember her words exactly, but, but he does not seem to be concerned with bringing an effort, uh, bringing order toward that. I think that's exactly right. As I understand Bishop Latour's and previously Father Latour's task in the new world, that's not his task. His task is to bring the Catholic church to order. He has a specific jurisdiction, and it's not to say that the people and the place of New Mexico that lie outside of the church are not his concern. Most certainly, they're his concern, but he's not there to bring order to them. He's there to bring order to a church that's in calling it in a calling it in a state of decay would kind of be to suggest that it was in a state of 
repair at some point. It, it maybe never was. It's just, it's on the frontier of the new world. So, um, yeah, I appreciate that comment. I, I, I think Tori's right. This is not, he seems to appreciate almost from a distance the indigenous people and is not seeking to kind of like um, overpower th them with his order. However, it's a different story with the Catholic church. He's there um, to get his ducks in a row. Okay. Yeah. So there's the life that he begins to make in a place that's existed for centuries that has its own culture. And then there's the job to do that is the work of a Bishop. And those are not, they, 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 coincide they intersect but are not yeah the same thing yeah, yeah. that's okay. right okay i see um okay heidi katie asked a question why do you think this episodic book succeeds where other episodic books fail are there themes that tie the pieces together she says i would put forward the motif of gardens and growing things as a symbol of faith but that is admittedly one of the ways i teach this book so where does this episodic book succeed where other episodic books fail I think it's a really good question. I liked that question. I like what she said about the the motif of the gardens and growing things, which I think that's really true in the book. And there's other things uh, that there's thread. I think one of the reasons it succeeds is because Cather is so beautifully descriptive as an author and so compassionate towards uh, her subject matter, um, which, and it, so she has, as we've talked about, this voice that carries through. And so just on kind of the, 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 the style side, the style kind of carries it through and the skill of the author carries, carries it through. Um, and then I do think there's these thematic elements, um, you know, kind of this, the, the question of the, the different cultures that are being examined, um, the theme of the unfolding nature of Latour's great work, the friendship between him and Viant, um, the, the culture clash, as we talked about, the landscape, um, and then some of those those symbolic and elements and motifs that that Katie's mentioned that carry through. It just takes a really, really skilled author to do something like this. Really skilled. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and it's... <laughs> um, not for amateurs. Yeah, no. Um, and it's not even for like serious professionals. I don't know of another book like this. Um, and... So it just really defies characterization. And I love that. Um, memory novels can succeed in this. Uh, but as we've said, a memory novel has a first person narrator. And then that becomes a thread that carries it through one person's life, one person's reminiscence, one person's trajectory of growth, whatever that is. Um, so uh, I think that, that the things that I've mentioned, what else would you add to that, guys? Sorry, Heidi. What else would you add to? What else like, would you two the add reason to? Like, why yeah, the, why else it succeeds? What am I missing? Well, I think you. I think you hit them. I, I, I think you're right. Also, I, I think about writing in a narrative form is something that writing teachers uh, encourage budding writers to not try because it's so hard. Like mm -hmm. I, I remember college students coming to me and saying, "Like I want to write the six-page essay, but I want to write it in." open form poetry and that's going to be the kind of like my mode of discourse and i just want to say my advice to you is don't and i think most writing teachers advice to writing in the episodic form is don't master the form first then try something tricky like Catherine's doing and my suspicion is that she 
I, I don't know her other books that well, really mastered this, like the straightforward narrative form thematically cohering together. And then she was like, hold my beer. <laughs> I can, Matt, yeah, I can just see her saying that. Let's talk about this question from Anne. She says she's interested in hearing all of our thoughts about the story of the Navajo regaining their land. This story is the last episode we get before the Archbishop's death, and it struck me as odd when I read it. Father Latour doesn't have anything to do with the Navajo regaining their land, yet this is the last episode that Cather chooses to write before his death scene. Why do you think that is? Either of you have any thoughts on this? I have a thought on it. I don't feel very strongly about it, about my opinion. My hunch is that so much of what Father Latour and Father Vaillant have done during their time among the native people has been met for the most part positively. I wonder if this story is a reminder to the reader from Cather, hey, I haven't forgotten about the monstrosities that were also committed. I'm not ignorant about those things. So, and, and I don't think that that is, I think that is strategically very, would be a really smart move. You know, if you're, if you're telling this alternate history, if this book is an alternate history about kind of um, how to step into the new world from the old world as carrying strong religious and cultural convictions, how do you do it? with great dexterity and grace. Here's the story for you. But strategically, I want to remind you, I'm not ignorant of history. I realize that these two fathers are exceptions rather than the rule. And I also recognize the great calamities that happened at the hands of many Europeans at this time to the native people. Patty? Yeah, I I really like that. I think that I think it also shows a couple of things. One is that Latour's lifespan, that his life spanned a, a large chunk of important U.S. history that isn't addressed in the novel itself, the novel proper. And just kind of putting that in gives us a sense of kind of placing him within his own time. And then I also, I also think it shows us that that wasn't his primary concern and that to your point, he was, and this is stressed, through the, the through the Navajo episode, that he is himself a minority within a majority culture, representing the representing the Catholic Church, which has never been prominent in the United States, other than in the Southwest, really. Um, and so we have a kind of a deeper, richer understanding of him, because this is the only time that Cather does indeed in, a, indict the majority culture, right? In talking about what happened to the Navajo. Um, and as we've talked about, that's not her, that's, that's not her modus operandi in general, right? Like she's so compassionate towards all of this class of cultures, except when it comes to the Navajo being taken from their land. Um, and then there's kind of this aside about slavery, which is not a major focus of the novel and wouldn't have been in the Southwest. It's not her avoiding the issue. It just wouldn't have been uh, primary at this, in this particular place within the larger American culture. I want to I want to say something. I think it's really important for people who are readers of the Bible to remember that the first major conflict after Christ's resurrection is not a theological conflict per se, 
it's an ethnic conflict and it's a question of like cultural imperialism in a way. Like I'm kind of, you know, I, I understand I'm kind of um, mangling the story of Acts a little bit to kind of have it speak to death comes to the archbishop. But the first big dispute within the church is how much of the law do the Gentiles have to follow, right? It's not, hey, was Jesus God and man? Was he man? Was he God? That was not the big debate. The big debate was, okay, here are these new believers that have no Jewish history, um, that have not been keeping up with Jewish ceremonial law, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now they're believers in Christ. How much of the law do they need to keep? And they and like even the disciples are not on the same page about this. It's a massive fight from the beginning. So I, I mean, what I really respect about this book is that she's taking on is Willa Cather in this book, like one of the chief kind of um, hinge points that is within the New Testament, and she's in some ways kind of applying it to the new world. And it's not that this is a simple resolution. If even the disciples, if Peter and Paul are arguing about this in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles, um, this is not a subject that is easily resolved. So again, Cather is kind of walking where angels fear to tread in this book. And part of the reason I think we respect it so much is because She's successful, I think. Mm. I think she's really successful, both in acknowledging the extreme, um, delicate nature of the subject and not muting her own voice and also not muting the real harsh things that kind of blossomed out of um, the venture of the old world into the new. The only thing I want to add is that at the top of 295, there's a really interesting sentence it would be easy to gloss over and maybe is all that should be done, but nonetheless, I shall not gloss over it. It says, after five years of exile, the remnant of the Navajo people were permitted to go back to their sacred places. And I think that that idea is why this section gets brought up. Because I think that this book is going back to the landscape thing is, is partly about the idea of you know, Wendell Berry's line, there are no sacred places and unsacred places. There are sacred places and desecrated places. Um, and I think that that's why this section is here at the end of the book. I th it maybe is a bit of a leap from what uh, Tim was just saying there. It might be feel a little bit uh, like I changed gears, but that's the nature of a Q&A episode. Um, do you want, anybody want to add anything else to this question or should I move on to the next one? Okay. Let's talk about I'm trying to scroll up for this question here. Let's talk about the um the prologue because Carolyn asks, could you revisit the prologue in light of the whole book? I'm especially interested in hearing your thoughts about the motives for sending Latour. Uh, maybe he can keep an eye out for my lost El Greco. How does Cather use the prologue to deftly introduce some of the main themes of the narrative? Um, who wants to take this first? I'll do it. Um, I think it, it provides a contrast to what we're going to find, especially considering how at the end of the novel, we see the shift of uh, Latour's in, internal 
loyalty and commitment to his homeland versus his new land um, and how he feels he ends up feeling more at home in the new world than in the old world in order for us to understand uh, the full weight of that shift for him I think we needed a glimpse into the old world and that that the prologue provides that along with some of his memories along the way and some of Viant's memories um, with Philomene, his sister and their in their shared history um, I also think that it gives us a backdrop for the cultural kind of uh, sophistication of the uh, of, of the church proper, the church as it is existing in Europe at the time. Um, and there's this sense of these these priests and, and, and bishops and cardinals that are gathered together. They have not only a spiritual vocation, but they also have like a shared kind of sophisticated culture that they all seem to be really involved in except for the new world priest who's there at the time the missionary the missionary bishop is he a bishop bishop ferrand yes and he's from the new world and he's the one who's like you can see that there's he provides the contrast of like why are these guys talking so much about the wine and the food and the pictures and all that let's talk about evangelizing the new world and so what Cather does so brilliantly in this novel is always provide these contrasting doubles in every scene of the novel we have virtue and vice contrasted and we have the new world and the old world contrasted and um and uh, we have diff- two different cultures contrasted right um and Uh, or two different levels of character or whatever it is. And in this particular, in the prologue, we have the new world is, or excuse me, the old world is the setting and the new world is the anomaly. But for the rest of the novel, the new world is the setting and the old world is the anomaly. But we have to have that contrast, but she puts it as a prologue to kind of displace it or separate it from the novel proper. And then, of course, to give us what's at stake. I mean, just it serves a plot point. It tells us what in the heck Bishop Latour is doing there um, and that he's being sent there. Uh, And I have talked for long enough. So I think there's more, but I'd love for somebody else to say those other things. So (laughs) I think I think Heidi just got all of it. And to add one note would diminish the composition. <laughs> the painting, though. What do you make of the painting? Well, fine. I won't say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say, Heidi, it takes two painters to paint, one to do the painting, and one to say, it's finished. Put the brush down. Mm, that was very wise. They're going to get I'm another poster. <laughs> Put the brush down. <laughs> I have thoughts on that. Yeah, <laughs> that little aphorism you just offered. Um, on the it on it takes two painters. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to point out that on page five, there's a paragraph that is one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole book. So I'm mm. going to disregard the suggestion of the second painter. <laughs> Who in this case probably isn't even a painter. He probably just like, like a framer. It's not finished. We better listen to him. He knows what. He, yeah. you he's know. a framer. He's the cathedral and, builder. So probably the second painter is just a framer who wants to get his job done. So he wants the painting to be finished so he can go home and have tea. Um, <laughs> it's at the bottom of page five. The missionary Bishop Ferrand looked much older than any of them, old and rough, except for his clear, intensely blue eyes. His diocese lay within the icy arms of the Great Lakes. And on his long, lonely horseback rides among his missions, the sharp winds had bitten him uh, well. The missionary was here for a purpose, and he pressed the point. Pressed his point. He ate more rapidly than the others and had plenty of time to plead his cause. Finished each course with such dispatch 
that the Frenchman marked he would have been an ideal dinner companion for Napoleon. <laughs> um, who, of course, was a complicated figure in the history of European civilization. But um, I, I think the idea of something being old and rough, except for intensely blue eyes in the middle, is a very interesting image for what's to come. Um, for a landscape that is old and rough, there's a sense in which perhaps any number of things could be the blue eyes in the center of that. Um, whether that's Bishop Latour himself, the Catholic church, the church he's trying to build, um, these pockets of community, um, people who have great faith, like the woman who comes to the church that sneaks away from the, the Smiths. Right. I maybe again, this might be an example of me reading too much into it, but I, I, when I read a line like that, when I go back and read it, it feels as if, that's what we're going to get through a lot of the book is a pair of blue, clear, intensely blue eyes in the middle of an old and rough face. I think that image has a lot going for it, if you will. Um, and again, that might be me making a connection that Cather didn't intend, but um, I stand by my connection <laughs> nonetheless. Um, it, it's at least meaningful for me. And so there are many connections to be made with a, with the prologue that I think, um, I, I think a good prologue is, does that it allows readers to make connections, um, in all kinds of different ways. And every time you read it, you should make some kind of new connection. Some prologues are just a paragraph long and setting the stage, but some prologues are thematic and are meant for connection making. I think this is one that is meant for connection making as much as anything. Um, but I said, I've said more than Tim wanted me to say already. So, okay. Anne asks, why is the random little recounting of the deaths, the debts father Viant incurred while he was Bishop of Colorado included? What does this add to his character? Father Viant got in debt, became a problem. Why is this included? I, character build. I mean, not, not character building as you're going to be a better man after you incur some debt. I mean, <laughs> The author is building her character. It seems like maybe Father Latour would never, I don't know, he would incur debt. That's not, That's. there's nothing wrong with debt. I, I Unless you're buried under it, then it's not great. Yeah, then it's not great. Yeah, <laughs> what's his name? Ramsey is like, wait, hold on, Macintosh. You just undid like a lifetime worth of work. Um all right. He's he's wise. Dead is wise. Dead is wise. Undead wise is unwise. I, I, it just seems like maybe it's worth mentioning because it just shows the things that he has spent men on, money on, and the things that he values. Hmm. You guys are both looking at me like, man, you really let the team down, Tim. That was a little bit not weak. at all. That, we that was crazy. We both just went we thought you had tiger yeah. blood. What is this? Well, I mean, it's about it's about building, like drawing a character. Once you told me I needed to exercise, like you lost me there. So yeah, you, she hasn't been agreeing with anything you've said for like an hour and ten minutes now. <laughs> I would like to revisit the tape because I believe 
I only asked a question. That's not what I heard. I heard judgment. We already um, went over the nature of rhetorical Heidi, questions earlier. The guilty flee when no one pursues. Oh, man, you just won that argument. Maybe that you just is... drop some scripture on me. Is that what you Death Comes for the Archbishop is about? Yeah. Um, I think that Viant had to have some kind of flaw, right? And he here at the end, we see that he's... Like he's, but it's a flaw that in some ways is like kind of endearing, which is what we need, right? Like he goes out and he incurs all this debt because he's trying to spread the gospel. Like who's going to, who's, who's going to be that mad at him, right? The church is rich. They've got plenty of money. So, um, this, uh, I, I think that it, it, it is one of those flaws that's kind of brilliant because it bolsters his characterization while still letting him fail at something, um, and then it invites our, you know, our judgment in, in the, um, and I mean judgment and like the discernment type, our, our discerning judgment um, mm-hmm. uh, upon, you know, kind of these, these final actions in the, the, the latter half of his life or the latter days of his life. Okay. <clears throat> Carla. Well, it says Carla and Michael. So one of them, one of the Galdos uh, asked this question. I would be interested to hear a brief discussion on the way Gather chose to reveal the depth of Father Vaillant and Latour's relationship and ties toward the end of the novel rather than beginning. Their ties from early on in their vocation were so compelling to me and their backstory provided so much more depth to both of their characters. Why wait until so late in the novel to reveal these depths? I was enjoying the novel throughout, but it suddenly became so much more meaningful once I felt I knew both men better. Tim, um, as a playwright, I'd love to know what you think, as, you know, as a craftsperson about that choice. I think that our reader, I may be wrong, actually enjoys it where it is. Um, because I think, I think Heidi said this once, meaning is not always uh, chronological. Heidi, I think you said something close to that. I'm probably butchering it. But it's not that you get to the end of a story in which A follows, excuse me, B follows A and C follows B. Um, the meaning of their relationship, the kind of a, the close ties that we've seen throughout this story, they are really highlighted when we hear how they first met and how that first bond was formed. It, it um, and, and I think that hearing the story at the beginning before we really have seen these two characters in action, it would not m- mean nearly yeah. as much. Yeah. This is a harvest. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. We, she's been planting seeds for 200 pages and she just harvested our, the pathos that she's been preparing mm-hmm. for us to, to engage, you know, whatever, however, what, I don't know what I'm, I'm not speaking in an actual sentence. The point is she's been planting seeds. Yeah. For this to mean something, you know, for for the pathos to be there when we get to it. Uh, so I think you're right. I think that's what usually when we feel something as a reader, as opposed to like when it's a non-intellectual, like when we actually feel a response to a book, we feel it because it's been set up. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's why you rarely feel, in a crime crime novel, like a murder mystery, you rarely feel for the victim. You feel yeah. more for the people who are investigating it. I've thought a lot about what that does to 
to the to the nature of those kind of stories and like they interact the way readers interact with it. I haven't come to any conclusions, but you don't like when the first chapter is, you know, Bob got knocked off with the hammer in the library by Colonel Mustard. Uh, well, except you wouldn't know that at the beginning. Then, um, then uh, you don't like have this big pathetic and, you know, response of pathos where you're like, I just, just weeping. Like a catharsis. You, right? Yeah. You, it's the whole point, right? It's, it has mm-hmm. to happen to somebody so that that person is almost an abstraction, except in as much as they give you clues, they're tied to the clues. And so you end up spending most of the time, your pathos is tied to the inability or the ability of the detective to solve the crime. Um, and so here, when pathos occurs, it's because she spent the whole time preparing you to feel that. Right. That was a little tangent there on the nature of no, it was mystery novels. Straightforward answer, but okay, okay. Yep, it's a slow roll. The novel is it rewards that, contemplation. This is the last question, Tim. I feel like the last question should be directed toward Heidi. Do you, would you would you agree? Please, with that? that's great. Okay. Mostly because I don't think you're probably going to have a good way to answer for this. So I don't. Okay, yeah. I, don't want, I don't want. Me to, neither. I don't, I don't even know what it you, is. I don't want you to be embarrassed. And your inability. It's like a football coach should always put his players in a position to succeed. Yes. I wouldn't want to put you in a position to fail here. Yes. Um, Natalie asks this. It's actually the first question on the list, I believe. The seven deadly sins and the bad priests versus the cardinal virtues and Latour and Viant. Do you think that is a theme? Interestingly enough, I did indeed make a chart in response to this question yeah i thought you might have (laughs) wait for real you made a chart i did make a chart well can you put it up on the screen so we can see it well this is just my notes from my chart my chart is on google docs but these are my notes right here you Um, made so you made notes and then you also made a chart on google docs of the at what point were the notes not sufficient (laughs) well i made the chart first and then i like jotted them down anyway it doesn't matter so I like this. I really do like this question a lot. And I don't think it's perfect because I couldn't find an envy counterpart unless somebody comes to y'all's mind. Um, But I found six characters, not just priests, but other characters who have uh, some manifestation of a deadly sin that brings along their their doom, right? And of course, Balthazar's is gluttony. He gets thrown off the top because he ends up murdering a child because he's gluttonous. Um, Martinez, his vice is lust. He's, he refuses to give up sleeping with his parishioners and then he deflowers the saintly girl. Um, Lucero's is greed. That one's really obvious. Um, Oliveras, Isabella Oliveras is extremely vain, which is one of the major manifestations of pride and actually was its own uh, in the early days before that was consolidated in the Western tradition to seven vices, uh, there were considered to be eight vices, and one of them was vainglory or vanity. It was separate from pride. And then they were kind of conflated, although that's a negative word. They were put together eventually. The same thing happened with sloth, um, when in the early form, sloth and acedia were different vices. Mm. Um, and then brought together later on, um, I think in the Eastern tradition, um, anyway, sales, buck sales could be wrath. 
And Gallegos, even though he's given a shorter amount of time, he could be sloth because he refuses to baptize the the, um, children later. And he just kind of squanders his opportunities as a priest and lives a life of leisure um, instead of taking his vocation seriously. So I really liked that. Heidi White. Um, I am impressed. Well, it wasn't my idea. It was hers, but I loved it. (laughs) You teased it out. It was. It was. She deserves credit, but you teased it out. He's impressed. It almost sounds like he might be surprised that you're capable of this. (laughs) No, no. Okay. No, I will admit being a little bit surprised because I read it. I read Uh it and I thought, I read the question. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Oh, well, there's, I mean, who knows if there's any sort of relationship there. And then I'm listening to you. I'm like, oh, there sure. It sure sounds like there is. That's I didn't great... know you had so much range on your jump shot. <laughs> <laughs> that is, see, that's a sports ball reference, and I think yep, I get it. Yep. <laughs> I am just really obsessed, as David knows this about. I am like obsessed with the idea of the virtues and the vices in classical tradition transitioning into Christian tradition, and it's just like one of my great zealous scholarly passions in life. Sometimes you give people questions where they're going to succeed. It's like, you know, that's right. That's right. You move them closer to the hoop. (laughs) Thank you. So I loved this question. Thank you so much for posting it and feel free to start a conversation with me about this anytime. (laughs) Share your Google doc with her, Heidi. Maybe I will. Tim, would you like to to answer this question as well. No, 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 no. In all, in all seriousness, there, I could do nothing to improve on that. Nothing at all. That was a great answer. I, well, I do want to say one thing. Yes. Um, as I know we're wrapping up the show. I just want to give special, a special shout out to B.W. Perales, who's like, just like reads like a Cather scholar. I do not recall seeing B.W. much on the Facebook page before. I just want to kind of acknowledge every once in a while, we have a reader who shows up in the Facebook feed and I think, oh, wow, this person really has got some real chops. Um, and I felt that way about B.W. Perales. Don't worry, y'all. He was surprised at my answer, too. So. <laughs> oh, hush. Hush. That's so <laughs> terrible. That's so terrible. I don't want no, to exercise him. Back off. <laughs> Okay, you guys have to admit it. I'm Sometimes sorry. you get on Facebook and you're yeah. like, dang, our readers are like, they're really good. And I feel like the level of conversation and discussion and questions and answers, like with each ensuing book, just like steps forward, steps forward. It's true. And I felt that, I felt that way this week. It's and true. then my co-hosts used that opportunity to mock me. We too. Are you here for another reason? <laughs> it finally dawns on me. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Just occurred to me. Oh my gosh, uh, you guys. Yeah, but I'm glad we could get. I'm glad years. we could get somewhere today. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we had a we had a break with you. That's right. Episode. I mean, it only took like eight years, but <laughs> yeah, well, we got there. Yeah, wow. yeah. Do you think you'll want to come back, or are you like, gosh, we I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we also need you. We, we do. We, we definitely need you to be here. Um, he said, patting Tim's head lightly. <laughs> trying to pat your head on the, the screen. No. Um, this truly though, thank you to everyone who sent in questions. They are as always great questions. Uh, I guess I should apologize. Cause I had typed out the thing, like post your questions here. Here's going to be the thread. And then it turned out I forgot to hit enter. So Heidi sent me a message just a couple of days later and was like, is there a thread? I don't think there's a thread. And then I realized 
I'm not very smart and I'm forgetful. And so she saved the day because it would have been a really poor Q&A episode if we had no, no questions. questions. <laughs> uh, we would have just had to make them up. Talk about the Super Bowl or something, which that would have been boring too. So, because um, I got to make a chart, so and Heidi got to make a chart. Yeah, out. exactly. Well, thanks to everyone for your questions. Uh, again, we're going to discuss one through seven chapters, one through seven of Rebecca. That is going to be next week. Uh, we are going to have Act Four of Richard the Second coming up, and there's the Daily Poem, and then of course we are a little bit into the Two Towers. So that will be. I think we're talking about the next three chapters, next two chapters of the Two Towers for next week. So that's uh, accessible through the Patreon page. So head over to Patreon.com/slash/CloseReads for access to that. And if you'd like to get the newsletter, you can go to CloseReads.Substack.Com. And if you're not already a part of it, the Facebook page is facebook.com slash close reads. And on Instagram, we are at close reads pods. I believe that covers all of the business. Don't forget to check out Karen Swallow Pryor's series at bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. And when we do talk about Jane Eyre in about a month and a half's time or a month, month time, a month's time, we will be using her new edition of that. So that's available for pre-order now and those will be shipping soon. Okay. Is that everything? I think I covered everything. Heidi, Tim, any final thoughts? Nope. Nope. All right. Well, I'm then. so glad we did this book. Thank you, David, for putting oh. this book on the list. <laughs> of course. All right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.